Welcome to Confronting the Madness, a podcast exploring the psychological issues of our time. My name is Mark Corthius, host of Confronting the Madness. In this episode, I had the good fortune of speaking with Dr. Anne Harrington. Anne Harrington is the Franklin L. Ford Professor of the History of Science at Harvard University. Dr. Harrington received her PhD in the History of Science from Oxford University and has held postdoctoral fellowships at the Wellcome Institute for the History of Medicine in London and the Institute of Freiburg in Germany. For six years, Anne co-directed Harvard's Mind, Brain, and Behavior Initiative. She also was a consultant for the MacArthur Foundation Research Network on mind-body interaction. Anne and I spent the duration of the episode discussing themes outlined in Mind Fixers. Her book, Exploring Psychiatry's Repeatedly Frustrated Struggle to Understand Mental Disorder in Biological Terms. And now I bring to you Anne Harrington. Um, my guest today on Confronting the Madness is Dr. Anne Harrington. Uh, Dr. Harrington is the Franklin Ford Professor of the History of Science and Faculty Dean for Forsheimer House at Harvard University. Anne's book, Mind Fixers, Psychiatry's Troubled Search for the Biology of Mental Illness, has been one of the most impactful books I've personally ever read. And Anne, I'm so honored to have you here with me today, virtually. So we can discuss some of the themes within the book. Well, thank you so much for having me, Mark. I'm really glad to be here. And, and just before we jump in uh, to the book itself, I was curious about what personally drew you to the history of science and specifically neuroscience and psychiatry. Oh, my goodness. So um, I'll, I'll have to give you the short answer because uh, the long answer would take me back to my like 20s and teen years. But... I'll answer the question about what drew me to psychiatry, because I started off more as a broad historian of the brain and behavioral sciences. Mm -hmm. uh, in the course of uh, my career at Harvard University, I began teaching a lecture course on the history of psychiatry at a very introductory level to undergraduates. Um, it's called Madness and Medicine, and it became a popular general education course for undergraduates who were required to take a history course, but didn't think they liked history. And so, you know, they were sort of the sciencey types. And so they would take my course thinking that maybe it wouldn't be too history, maybe be kind of sciencey. And so it'd be a way to fulfill a requirement. Um, and in the course of teaching that course, um, this is not exactly what you asked, but I'll um, take the occasion to say it. Um, I got particularly frustrated with my own lack of ability to help my students understand a really important part of the world that they lived in, namely why um, it had become so relentlessly and also so incredibly rapidly biological in orientation. Uh -huh. I, I had a lot of students uh, you know, who also had their own experiences with the mental health care system. A lot of them were on medication. Um, uh -huh. We would go through the history and it would become clear that you know, for 
certainly their grandparents, and in many cases, even their parents, uh, it was a very different world of mental health care. And then sometime in the 80s, um, we threw all that out and we embraced something quite different. And I felt um, I got interested in writing a book about that because I wanted to understand it for myself. I didn't feel mm -hmm. that the narratives out there did justice to it or explain mm -hmm. some of the puzzles. Uh, and I wanted to understand it um, in order to be able to help my students better understand it also and in that way better understand and be equipped to navigate their own moment. Hmm. Well, I, I, I want to say I think you've done a great service in this area because um, for me, I, I think I purchased 10 of your books when I was in a leadership role in mental health because wow. now some – not to help your residual sales, but because, <laughs> because so many people now um, want to support mental health in some way, shape, or form. And so I think it's really important. You did a good, a, a fantastic job of laying out how we got to the point we are today, good, bad, and ugly. And it's important, I think, for people to understand that context in order for them to make a more informed judgment whether it be for how you um, treat a child, yourself, or others, without just taking it at face value that medicine has all the answers. And so I think you did a great service in doing that. So I just want to take a step back and just, for those that have never read the book, just give, I think, a high-level summary of what Mind Fixers is about, and you can correct me or add to it um, as you see fit. Um, so Mind Fixers explores psychiatry's repeatedly frustrated struggle to understand mental disorder in biomedical terms. Is that an accurate depiction of how you would characterize Mind Fixers? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, uh, is there more? Are you going to? Um... Well, well, I was gonna, I was going to add to say, um, you know, you start all the way back in the 1800s, and you do you know, chronologically, you, you kind of jump back and forth in a few decades here and there, but chronologically you go through, um, I think there's a push and pull between, I guess in simplistic terms, nature versus nurture, or, you know, the Freudian approach versus the medical approach. And it's almost as though it's this internal battle amongst who's right and who's wrong. It's like, um, you know, Egas Moniz is the guy sticking a needle through your eye and winning a Nobel Peace Prize with the lobotomy, then Freud is the, the right person because, you know, he decided that because you spanked your child too much or too little, uh, that's the right approach. And so it, the book also, I think, grapples with the internal struggles of the um, sector itself as well. Well, let me let me jump in a little bit about about Monas and 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 Freud and 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 say a few things if that's okay. Um, sure. Because uh, one of the things that um, I found I found really important um, is to try to help myself and my students and maybe my readers to um, understand the logic of certain choices that were made in their own times. It's really easy um, to mock and demonize. <laughs> and I'm not saying that Mona's, I, you know, was a 
Now there's this is this is easy to mock in a good way now. <laughs> right, um, but it's actually more powerful as a critique if it if the, you just don't make fools of them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a more you know, and you know, so take take the Freudians. Um, it's really easy to say that you know they were obsessed with spanking and with sex and. They had all these crazy, you know, obsessions with bad mothers, and and there is some truth to all of that. But one thing that, but but then it's then it becomes incomprehensible. Why did such idiots end up having such an outsized influence on psychiatric care for so many decades? And then you either have to conclude that everyone was just dumb, and then mm-hmm. finally the good guys, the proper scientists, came along and cleaned house. And we got some common sense or, and that is, by the way, a narrative you see in a lot of textbooks that, mm-hmm. you know, I've, I've even read textbooks. I'm interrupting myself here, but I've even read textbooks from the nineties and the new millennium in which um, people say in, they, they, the Freudians inexplicably uh, had a hold on, uh, on, on psychiatry's way of doing things until finally some good science came along, but it wasn't inexplicable. Um, the and, and that is helpful because then you can also understand better, you know, why certain other approaches, even including biological approaches, have a hold on us, even if we then conclude that they're actually quite problematic. And you know, so, mm-hmm. you know, why why did the Freudians uh, have such a hold? And I'm talking particularly about the American story, which uh, yeah. I best. Um, and the answer is that um, it has a lot to do with World War II, and it mm-hmm. actually doesn't have that much to do with Freud or with spanking or with childhood. It has to do with the fact that during the Second World War, you had uh, basically two groups of psychiatrists, the ones that were in the mental hospitals looking after the chronically severely mentally ill and doing you know, the lobotomies and the shock treatments, and then these other folks that were more out in the community and doing forms of psychotherapy, during the Second World War, it was this second group of people that largely stepped up and went out into the battlefields and tried to patch together the soldiers mm-hmm. and uh, came back from the Second World War at least um, making the case that they had helped win the peace. Mm-hmm. And um, they had methods that were re- that were necessary for you know the post-war period, whereas their retrograde colleagues in the hospitals with their crude methods, you know, weren't prepared for the future. Right. Um, and you know, biological psychiatry had suffered a real blow to its reputation also in World War II because of the Nazis and their commitment to biological approaches. There had been a tremendous amount of outcry over the decaying, uh, the decay and neglect in the mental hospital system that they were associated mm-hmm. with, and so on and so on. Uh, so you get uh, the the Freudians kind of take over because they look like they're good news. They look like the good guys. Why do they become the bad guys? You know what happens, and then that's the history you need to understand. Right. Um, you know, and, and part of, part of the history, why do they become the bad guys? Your book also speaks to overreach on both camps. And so maybe talk, talk a little bit about how the Freudians post-war uh, overreached and then how the biological revolution in the 80s kind of took back the reins. And then maybe we could speak to some of the you know, more recent um, 
quotes from some of the leaders in the biological revolution and how they deemed it as a failure itself. Yeah, so that's exactly uh, the, the that's exactly the story that um, they become the bad guys because they of hubris because of overreach uh, mm-hmm. because um, they you know moved into realms of um, sort of human activity that were by any reckoning had seemed to have very little to do with medicine. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were concerned with. Um, juvenile delinquency, they were concerned with fascism uh, and the psychological roots of it. They were behind the radical policy uh, changes that led to the deinstitutionalization of the state mental hospital system. That was probably their proudest moment, although it then became one of their you know big, biggest failures, at least in the eyes of many. Uh, Can I just can I just cut in there, uh, Anne, and talk about the deinstitutionalization piece um, and, and just get your thoughts on that? Because one of the statements in your book that's that's jarring, and I'm wondering if you think it's an offshoot of uh, deinstitutionalization, is, um, and maybe, maybe folks don't know this, but um, the three largest providers of mental health services in the United States are jails. Yeah. And I'm wondering if you know, deinstitutionalization, if you think deinstitutionalization has played a role in that. I do. I don't think it's the a, a direct uh, role in that people marched out of hospitals and into jails, although there have been people who have talked about what they call sort of transcarceralization, where people who would have been institutionalized in one kind of setting then end up in, in, in other kinds. Uh, but a, a big reason that uh, deinstitutionalization has, or the, a big reason why we have so many mental mentally ill being cared for in uh, in in the in the prison system and then the jail system, has to do with the fact that while there was this vision that you, when you released people from the mental hospital system, they would be then integrated into a community mental health uh, Mm -hmm. care system, there was a lot more appetite for budget cutting and Mm -hmm. downsizing the state mental hospitals than there was for truly supporting the kind of Mm -hmm. wraparound care that would have been necessary to genuinely treat people with severe mental illnesses in the community. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of the states in the U.S., um, you know, the state mental hospitals that always cost too much, they were happy to downsize. but then they relied increasingly on the federal government to fund folks in the community to the extent that they there was care at all. So um, you end up there. So the federal government would care for people in emergency rooms and hospitals. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's where people now, but they wouldn't uh, fund, the federal government would fund care for emergency people in emergency rooms and hospitals. Uh, but they weren't prepared to pay the salaries of staff in community mental health cares who would be community mental health centers uh, who would look after patients in these more humane ways and long-term ways uh, that have been the original vision. Mm -hmm. So money drives a lot of this. Right. So I'm jumping around a little bit, but so post-war Freudians take the, the helm Hubris causes them um, issue. Also, I think at that time, um, 
pharmaceutical drugs start to enter into the scene? I mean, they've been on the scene, but maybe talk a little bit about the evolution or the, the historical evolution of how pharmaceutical drugs started playing a bigger and bigger role in, in the treatment of mental illness. That's a really interesting story uh, because there's a lot of surprises, at least as we look around at the role that drugs play in our world today. Um, we probably imagine that drugs are a product of the biological revolution, that before we were all about psychotherapy and you know, delving into your childhood, and then we go biological and we throw out the couch and we you know, embrace the pills. Um, but actually, the um, the drugs that are the template for most, if not all, mainstream pharmaceuticals taken even today uh, have their roots in work in the from the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And um, the marketing of these drugs goes back to the 1950s. And one of the things that I'm often at pains to underscore is that the drug companies did not need psychiatry to pivot towards a biological frame of reference in order to sell drugs. It had no problem selling drugs in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And in fact, the best-selling drugs um, that, you know, up until, say, Prozac, the SSRIs in the new millennium in the late 90s, uh, were the anti-anxiety drugs like Valium. There were, I think in 1974, 2 billion uh, pills sold that year uh, worldwide. Um, So there's a story about how they marketed before we went biological. And then there's what happens after we go biological. And why do we identify biological psychiatry so much with medication, with with pharmaceuticals? And that's so it isn't simply that, you know, it isn't just a matter of the pharmaceutical companies pushing them. It has more to do, I think, with um, what it would mean for a psychiat- for a field like psychiatry, now that it had embraced a medical model. What would its work be? What would it right. mean to be medical? Mm-hmm. Um, and giving medicines is a pretty good starting answer to that question. And uh, all the more so because the previous bread and butter work of psychiatry, psychotherapy, was now increasingly outsourced to social workers and clinical psychologists um, who cost less. Mm-hmm. Um, this is why, um, you know, this, and so drugs become a marker of professional identity as mm-hmm. long, in addition to being uh, a cheaper treatment uh, for insurance companies. So it's a bit of a push and, push and pull there about professional uh, priorities and identity and an increasing tightening up of what the the insurance companies are prepared to pay for. Yeah. And I guess, you know, you started your book, I think, talking about psychiatry and its role in the narrowest sense in terms of dealing with the most severely mentally ill. And then over the chronology of your book, there's this mission creep that seems to come in with psychiatry that expands both through uh, things like the DSM going from 100 disorders to 300 disorders, um, all the way to the ways in which the, the patients that need, need to treat. And when you finished your book, you know, you, and you don't make too many, I guess, recommendations in your books. It's, it's a historical book, but 
But one of the notions that you espoused, which I I would tend to agree with, would be getting back to the roots of psychiatry, dealing with those that are most acutely ill. And I'm wondering if what type of pushback or feedback you've got from the uh, field with that comment. Um, yeah, this, this this has been my probably my least popular um, recommendation. Um, but that's but okay. you, can I just can I just ask if you think it's unpopular because it's a it's a threat to the ethos of who psychiatrists are. Just going back to your point about them not wanting to give up the um, prescribing rights to people like social workers or nurses. No, I actually don't. I'm not sure. Um, you know, and you know, but I have been struck that people bristle because of a suggestion I've made that if, to the extent that psychiatry is medical, um. Well, let me let me let me reframe it. Partly, um, the recommendation came in the context of in suggesting that it might serve patients better if psychiatry found its place in a larger ecosystem of mental health care carers and practitioners. Um, And there's many forms of expertise, and we can't all be experts on everything. And part of the reason that first the Freudians and then arguably the biological psych psychiatrists get themselves into trouble is they try to be everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, but if, um, if psychiatry is supposed to be the medical piece of an ecosystem of mental health care, then what should be its focus? And arguably its focus should be those forms of distress that we have reasonable reason to believe uh, have a, a biological medical physiological cause. Now, there's going to be disagreement, and there's, but that's healthy, and but that it would work then in partnership and in a more, in a less hierarchical fashion uh, with people who have other forms of expertise. Um, you know, people, sociologists, anthropologists, uh, clinical social workers, um, clinical psychologists, various forms of psychotherapists. Um, and we look in, within this ecosystem both for the, you know, what you know answers to the question around any individual case well what helps most mm-hmm. um and then we also um know when to hand over uh care of a patient to a clinician who may be in a position to do to offer better care and some so my vision was of a of a more dialogical less hierarchical approach to mental right. health care mm-hmm. Um, where expertise was distributed and people respected one another. Right, right. And, and that was the most controversial comment in your book based well, on... I don't, I, I don't, I don't, controversial is probably too strong of a word, but... Well, uh, I don't think they people were opposed to dialogue. I think it was that um, there was a resistance to... How do I... What, what do I think? actually think? Um some of the people who said this believe that psychiatry should itself become a more expansive humanistic field right. and that I was suggesting that they kind of embrace a narrow medical identity mm-hmm. uh, when they felt, in fact, the opposite should be true. It should reconnect with more of its social science, humanistic and existential roots that had been that it had rejected in its initial attempt to liberate itself from the 
hubristic years of the Freudian era. Right, right. Can we can we talk a little bit about the DSM? Um, and I, I know you were, I, I can't remember in the book which, you, you were at one of the DSM conferences, I believe. It might have been DSM-3 or DSM-4. I was at, uh, it was the, um, no, it's in 2013. It was the DSM-5. It was, it was the DSM-5. So I just want to read this because this is always, this jars me. Uh, so DSM classification. So Diagnostic Statistic Manual for Mental Health Disorders to classify um, mental health disorders. Uh, in 1952, I guess that would have been the DSM-1, there were 106 mental health disorders, 1968, 182, 1980, 285, 1994, there were 307. So that would have been the DSM-4. And so I just want to, the, the quote again, from some of the most uh, forward-thinking pioneers in psychiatry, Alan Francis, I'm sure you've, I think this might have come from your book, um, when, the, uh, when the American Psychiatric Association voted to approve the DSM-5, uh, Alan Francis, who was the chair of psychiatry at Duke University, believe, said um, that moment was a sad day for psychiatry, more the saddest moment in my 45-year career studying, practicing, and teaching psychiatry. And so, you know, when you talk about being more humanistic versus being more uh, medical, I, I guess the proof is kind of in the pudding a little bit there with respect to the expansive nature of what is a mental health disorder. So maybe from a historical perspective, you could you could walk us through how you've seen the evolution or the devolution, depending on how you look at it, of the DSM itself. Yeah, thank you. I mean, that that's a, a big question, but maybe I can offer a, a kind of a, a simple answer to start, which is that you could say that the growing numbers of disorders, the growing number of, of ways in which psychiatry, you know, has to identify someone as mentally ill reflects this hubristic expansion uh, of its purview that I was saying, you know, puts it at risk of suffering the same kind of a crisis and fate that the Freudians back in the late seventies suffered. You know, they, mm -hmm. you know, that, you know, all, no form of mental suffering is left out of, out of its purview. You, you could say it's that you could say though, that um, these growing numbers of disorders are a compassionate way to bring more and more forms of mental suffering into the purview of care. Mm -hmm. um, and void of devoid, you know, lacking a label, uh, you mm -hmm. lack any kind of validity or language or re you know for your suffering and recourse, you know, for treatment. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and I think there is a case to be made uh, for you know for that as a potentially compassionate move. But if you insist that or are inclined to believe that every one of these disorders is a disease uh, with its own unique uh, biological signature and that the job of psychi psychiatric researchers is to seek the, 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 the biological substratum of an ever-growing number of disorders, you're probably wasting money. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, before we started uh, recording, you were talking about the quote from Tom Insel. Mm -hmm. uh, I have it. I mean, yeah. You can read, he was the then director of the NIMH, 
do you want me to read it or do you have it memorized? I haven't memorized these things. No, why don't you read it? <laughs> so this is, I mean, this is another, it, again, my perspective on this is someone at the time who was granting funding to mental health programs that I thought I felt so passionate about. And mm -hmm. we're talking about tens of thousands of dollars, maybe a hundred thousand dollars, maybe Mill 500. Millions and of dollars. No, this is me oh. at the time when I read it. This is how much I was dispersing in my role. Oh, I see. And I, and, but I was thinking in my head that I was doing, you know, I was changing the world, right? And then I'm in your book and Tom Insel, who was the director for 13 years um, at, the, at the National Institute for Mental Health, which is, I think, the largest research granting body in the world for mental health research. I spent 13 years at NIMH really pushing on the neuroscience and genetics of mental disorders. And when I look back on that, I realized that while I succeeded at getting lots of really cool papers published by cool scientists at fairly large cost, I like it how we put fairly in there, <laughs> at fairly large cost, I think $20 billion, I don't think we moved the needle in reducing suicide, reducing hospitalizations, improving recovery of the tens of millions of people who have mental illness. I hold myself accountable for that. Yeah, I thought that was an amazing thing to go public on. And he then, you know, the sequela after he makes these um, statements like these is he leaves the field. He doesn't yeah. leave the field. He leaves biological research. And he goes into big data and the you know smart smartphone apps and but but what drives that is I, I think a question about time frame. You know, if you even if the NIMH kept investing for you know 30, 40 years in basic neuro, neurological genetic research, you know, maybe there would be some payoffs. Mm -hmm. I mean, some people, some of my friends in the field, like Steve Hyman, who I also quote in the book, you know, are, yeah. you know, quite, you know, doggedly, you know, we're going to hold, you know, and keep pushing because we're persuaded that, you know, there is going to be a genetic basis to some of these disorders and there is a biology, but don't expect pay dirt for at least 40 years. Mm. And probably another hundreds of billions of dollars in investments. A question I have for you, though, um, do you think Stephen or or yourself, if you're comfortable answering this, is is confident that, like, what type of biomarkers are we going to find for, are we going to find biomarkers for the 300 plus mental health disorders in the DSM? Or will there simply be biomarkers for things like schizophrenia, which is, you know, and, and going back to the origins are the the onset of your book and in, in the early 1900s i mean the focus was very much on trying to figure out how to treat schizophrenia and there was a you know the expanse of nature on depression and anxiety and all these things kind of mm. loop from that and so i'm just wondering you know what it, what investment in neuroscience will be made to produce what biomarkers to help then treat a patient in your mind? This is a great question because the story of the failure to find biomarkers in a timely fashion is probably also related to the expansion 
of the DSM into a huge kind mm -hmm. of, a, you know, cacophony of different disorders uh, that may or may not have bear any or very much of any relationship to biologically discrete disorders that will eventually be discovered. And so Steve Hyman was also very disappointed in the DSM-5. Mm -hmm. So they, in the, they, for me, they represent kind of two interesting uh, alternative paths. They both were directors of the NIMH at different times. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, both of them thought the decision to forge ahead with a new edition of the DSM, the thing that Alan Francis said was the saddest day in those 45 years as a psychiatrist. Uh, yeah. Both of them, you know, knew that it was going to be a train wreck, um, but they then chose different paths. So Steve Hyman um, kind of double down. Uh, but with the view that uh, the DSM is not going, can no longer be the um, reference point, uh, the guide, actually, Tom Insel said that also before he left the NIMH, he committed the NIMH to finding an alternative to simply mm -hmm. looking for biomarkers of existing DSM categories. So that wasn't the way. Mm -hmm. So the Deeper problem, in a way, is we don't, psychiatry does not really have anything more than a series of practical categories uh, by which it divides, you know, that it uses to uh, parse apart the world of mental distress. You know, mm -hmm. there, you know, people, there's depression and there's bipolar disorder and there's schizophrenia. And you mentioned schizophrenia as you know, arguably a solid one, but I think it's one of the less solid ones. In terms uh, of finding a biomarker for it? Well, no, not even so, even more foundational than that in terms of being clear that it's a coherent category. I see. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. that's, in an, and even in its origins, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't positioned as a single coherent categories. It was positioned as a family of disorders. Right. That you know may or may not uh, you know uh, uh, you know be biologically you know interconnected, uh, but more a family of disorders connected through overlapping symptoms. So mm -hmm. psychiatry is still driven more than many other branches of medicine by constellations of symptoms. You patients right. present with symptoms, uh, and you try to help the symptoms. One and and you know one of the things I do think is important to say is. Um, there are things that help um, and that you can help even in the absence of a kind of deep foundational scientific, basic scientific uh, framework. Um, mm -hmm. But psychiatry is far more empirical in its treatments than many branches of medicine. And that's been a source of frustration and anxiety within the field for a long time. Mm -hmm. And can, can I just ask you a little bit about current medications, more so for the, you know, generalized anxiety, depression? And I'm thinking about, you know, SSRIs in, in particular. Um, maybe just if you could talk through the history of, of SSRIs and and the battle between, battle's not the right word. Maybe it is. Who cares? <laughs> uh, dopamine, serotonin, and how in the end serotonin became the uh, de facto go-to prescription for primary care physicians to give out to patients today. I mean, it's just sure. like, and it is just as an editorial, I find it almost 
the data the data is weak on how SSRIs actually work, mm-hmm. and and yet it's been approved through the FDA. And then the the thing that I think your book again does a service to is that you know for somebody who's a layperson trying to figure out how they need to treat whatever it is that's going on with this anxiety or depression, nine times out of ten you're going to go to your family doctor and you're going to you're going to think of them as having all the answers when in reality it's much more nuanced than that. So the the serotonin versus dopamine and how we got to SSRIs being the being the, the go-to the, drug particularly yeah. for, for particularly for mood disorders, not yes. um, not so much for the psychoses. Um yeah. well, so this there were there there were antidepressants that have their roots in discoveries from the 1950s. Uh, they and the ones that became dominant were called the tricyclic antidepressants, and that tricyclic simply refers to sort of their chemical structure. They have sort of three circles, so tricyclic. Um, and most of them, it became clear by the 1960s, seemed to operate on a neurotransmitter called norepinephrine. Uh, actually, it wasn't so much dopamine. Dopamine became important for the schizophrenia story, but norepinephrine was the big, the big neurotransmitter for depression. Doesn't matter. Um, um, and um, the only re- and, and serotonin was actually a kind of neglected uh, neurotransmitter when it came to uh, antidepressants. There have been a brief period when people were excited by serotonin because um, of its interactions with LSD. And so people thought that it, um, you know, that it somehow was necessary for sanity uh, because LSD blocked serotonin and they thought LSD made you crazy. But that whole story kind of faded away for a while. Um, But um, the reason why serotonin then becomes the neurotransmitter of choice in the market of mood disorders had more to do, less to do with a change in theory and more to do with an attempt to create a safer antidepressant. Because right. the, the problem with the tricyclic antidepressants and that operated largely on norepinephrine was it could put a strain on your heart. And so people had to be monitored for that. And um, so the thought was that a more targeted antidepressant that um, privileged serotonin uh, you know, might be slightly safer. And then, so Prozac becomes the first one that really you know, makes it onto the market. And because uh, it's perceived as safer than the old tricyclics, uh, it's prescribed more liberally than they had been. And it's probably prescribed to patients with less serious forms of depression. Then doctors might've been inclined to prescribe a more a drug seen as, you know, potentially more serious or more dangerous. Um, and so they back then, then the drug companies come along uh, and they begin, you know, now we're in the biological revolutionary days of the you know, late 80s and 90s. Um, and they begin reframing their marketing of these drugs along biological lines. And they reach back into old research from the late 50s and 60s. Uh, that have been carried out on laboratory animals at the NIMH and had suggested that these drugs can affect levels of uh, both norepinephrine and serotonin. Right. 
Uh, again, everyone was more interested in norepinephrine back then, but the study showed it affected both. And they push a narrative uh, that says that the problem with that causes depression is too little serotonin, and these drugs replace the deficiencies or correct for the deficiencies. Um, it's not, um, you know completely clear that this came from any new, or it is completely clear that this didn't come uh, from any new foundational research that privileged serotonin over norepinephrine or even currently unknown neurotransmitters as the cause of depression. Mm -hmm. Um, That research from the late 50s and 60s was not designed to tell you what causes depression. It was right. designed to help people understand how the antidepressants work. And that's not the same thing. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to read one more quote, which I found to be. And so maybe I'll just, I've been jumping back and forth. I, I'm not very good at chronology, even though your book did a <laughs> it's very right. good job of, of, of the chronology of the uh, of psychiatry's trouble search for the biology of mental illness. Um, what, what I find striking, you know, now more than ever, mental health has become such a topical issue, particularly with, with COVID. Um, yeah. And what, what, what worries me uh, is, the, is the pathologizing, and, and I, I know there's, people are struggling, um, but the, the pathologizing of everything um, is some sort of mental health disorder versus um, life just being hard and having stressors, and you know we're born biologically with a uh, that as our you know fight or flight, and that you know I'm wondering how you think about the future of mental health care in terms of we we have the same solutions. Um, to the problem that we've had for, you know, half a century, let's say, yet we have the problems becoming multiplied. And also we have a society that's encouraging people, rightly so to some degree, to go seek help. And I'm just wondering, this is more of a societal question if you think that's going to lead to healthy outcomes for us as a society. This is a lot you're saying, and, uh, and it's really important what you're saying. Um, so let me, let me, let me say a few, share a few thoughts in response. Um, one is um, that I believe every form of mental suffering deserves care. Um, you know, and that if you're struggling and desperate and emotionally distraught, that, um, you know, there should be a place to find help and get steadied and move forward. Um, the problem potentially is that our society offers such a narrow band of options to people Mm -hmm. who are suffering and in order, this comes back a little bit to the point I was making about the DSM. Mm -hmm. Some ways in order to get help, you have to have a diagnosis. Yes. Um, But it's almost certainly true that 
you know, there are more forms of mental suffering or that's mental suffering is a hugely larger terrain than mental disease or mental illness. And so how do you make space for caring for people who are suffering Mm -hmm. without feeling that in order to care for them, you have to medicalize them? Yes. Yes. Very well said. And, um, you know, and I, I don't think... I hope you weren't asking me the answer because I was waiting for you to give it. <laughs> well, I, mean, I think that's a, a big, big question for our moment. And yeah. I do think that COVID has brought that into relief because the forms of suffering and acute, in some instances, mental suffering that we're seeing, it's going to be very hard to reframe these as chemical imbalances. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think, I mean, who knows what people might think or want to do, but um, it's brought back the language of trauma in a major way, yeah. of grief uh, mm-hmm. in a major way, of, um, you, know, the, of you know, the isolation. We, we're, there's a lot of new language and conversations out there that map relatively uncomfortably onto a medical model right. of, of me- and um and i'm this is like an emerging history for me and something i think needs to be you know needs to be attended to um one of the things i did in the fall is teach a new class to my students um not that big lecture class i was talking about at the beginning of our chat but a class called mental health matters and it was actually intended to be a class that was responsive to the emerging questions of our moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, one of the things that uh, we did is um, the, I, because of Zoom, I could get away with this. The director of the NIMH, the new director of the NIMH um, came in and spoke to uh, the students and um, it was a great conversation. He was completely lovely. Uh, but one of the things that uh, I came away struck by was how much the NIMH is not and doesn't see it is not focused on these kinds of issues and doesn't see it as its job. Right. And that's completely legitimate. It's a medical research institute. And he made that clear. Look, I'm not here to, uh, you know, the NIMH can't redress, uh, you know, systemic racism in society. And it's, uh, Mm -hmm. but then who can and where do we go? Yeah, and I was, was going to ask you that because it seems like, you know, in some respects, I'm thinking society, to some degree, has to go back to some first principles. And but who are the people? Is it is it intersection between um, people like yourselves who have a historical bend, philosophers, um, uh, other type of psychologists to try to articulate a path forward? for the future of mental health, because it's right now that the path where I see it going is, is fraught with all sorts of um, over medicalization, I would say. And I worry that without some sober second thoughts or, you know, I don't want to say transforming of systems, but I want to say really thinking about the best way to provide care to those in need. Um, You know, we're just going to be, pushing pills to everyone in society without thinking about it too deeply. 
And this is why I, now you inspire me to come back to my metaphor of the ecosystem mm -hmm. in which, um, there, you know, there's, there should be a place for medication. I think I'm not a disbeliever. Well, I, 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 at I all. Um, there should be a place for medical research and there mm -hmm. should be biological, you know, neuroscience. It should be all of that. Um, but what else should there be? And how do we value the other kinds of research and the other kinds of care? And how do we create an, an ecosystem of respect in which each piece of the ecosystem does really well what it does well and doesn't try to do other things that it doesn't do mm -hmm. well and is in dialogue with each other? That may not be a perfect solution because people, there's rivalries and there's tribalism and um, but it does seem to me that COVID push has pushed uh, the, my conviction that we need, we're going to need to find leaders um, in uh, areas of with areas with expertise that are not going to be found among medically trained, you know, neuroscientists in the lab. Yes. Um, yes. Or, or don't have a bias towards their their education and training that's so narrow that they can't think in a more holistic fashion. Can I, can I change gears a, a little bit? I want to, I just want to share one more quote and then I want to talk a little bit about the future of, of mental health care and, and some new modalities that I know, I know you're just starting to get interested in, or maybe you have for a while, maybe from a writing perspective, but another quote that I just want to end with, which again was not as jarring as Tom Insel's quote, but, I'm just going to read it to you and maybe ask you to respond because I think it speaks to how as Western rich countries, we try to tackle problems and sometimes the solution is almost worse than the problem itself to some degree. Mm -hmm. So in 2016, Shekhar Saxena, the director of the World Mental Health Organization's Mental Health Unit, was asked whether he'd prefer to be where he'd prefer to be if he were diagnosed with schizophrenia. He said he'd choose a city like Addis Ababa in Ethiopia or Colombo in Sri Lanka rather than New York or London. The reason was the former, he had the potential to find a niche for himself as a productive, if eccentric, member of the community. In the latter, he was far more apt to end up stigmatized and on the margins of society. So first of all, not everyone um, that are, of my colleagues um, approves of this. Kind of feels that that's romantic, you know. But the point, uh, you know, that the argument here, you know, and the reason I included it um, has to do with my belief that in pursuit of a sometimes narrowly medicalized or biological remedy for severe disorders like schizophrenia, we overlook the kind of obvious, which is that mm -hmm. um, even people with a severe mental illness are still people. Mm -hmm. And embracing and engaging their humanity um, mm -hmm. is not only the right thing to do, it may also be a therapeutically powerful thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, getting a person a, you know, a place to live that gives him dignity or her dignity uh, and independence or helping a person find meaningful work or meaningful connections um, may not feel very medical, but mm -hmm. 
but may actually be where, you know, particularly in absence of any kind of a magic bullet or, you know, outright remedy may actually be one of the more important things we need to do. And it would be disorienting to a profession that has put so much stake in its medical identity to maybe have to concede that it more important than giving another prescription to a more powerful antipsychotic, I just need to help this guy get an apartment. Mm -hmm. But it may actually be where one needs to, you know, that there may actually be a point to thinking that way. Yes. And I, I think you said that beautifully. And I, I know that you don't mean that that's every person, but for some people um, that may be optimal to being institutionalized or being in a, a jail cell, for example. If I could switch gears for, for just a minute, or, or not a minute, I'm going to switch gears <laughs> for the remainder of the time. <laughs> All right, yeah. As you did, as you did allude to um, in the 1960s, the emergence of psychedelics being used as a potential mechanism for treating things like alcoholism and um, other mental disorders. And you, you, you won't know this, but you did reference my hometown of Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. In oh my book. goodness. Yeah. Well, they were, they were the big center ones. They were, they were the big center ones. So I think Humphrey Osmond and then Atlas Huxley were um, the instigators. I think they were the ones maybe that coined the term psychedelics, meaning mind manifesting. They were, they were. Well, yeah. and, and so one of the things that I thought it wasn't explicit in your book, but I wonder if you thought about this. Um, obviously there was, you know, for a number of reasons, um, psychedelic drugs were um, made illegal through Reagan and Vietnam, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, but when, when there was research going on, um, it, you didn't explicitly say this in your book, but one of the things I took from it was that the basic research using LSD um, proved a finding with respect to serotonin that I think may have either directly or indirectly been beneficial towards what ultimately we we call SSRIs today. Like that initial research may have led folks to further explore um, that neurotransmitter is. Do do you see that or did you think through that at all? Or is that just me um, reading into something that actually wasn't It was more that the effort to relate serotonin to schizophrenia Yes. Uh, by virtue of LSD serving as kind of the the pharmaceutical model, was mm-hmm. the you know put serotonin on the map. That was a dead end. Yes. Uh, but interest in serotonin as potentially a you know psychologically potent you know a, a, a chemical that had some kind of psychological significance of interest in psychiatry was now on the map, and it then became of interest later to folks who were interested in understanding how the antidepressants uh, yes. different levels of, uh, of these neurotransmitters. So they were cousin projects um, yes. rather than, you know, there being a kind of direct lineage. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you. And so maybe um, for the last, I know you got to go at um, 115. I, I, my time. Yeah. But, but, but um, I'm wondering if you could walk through for those listening the, the components of your book where you talk about the early days of psychedelic research and then fast forward and we can cut at the point where 
where I have um, to even take my kid to a doctor's appointment, right? Yeah, or, or, or we, uh, sorry, we can cut it when Ronald Reagan shut it all down, but then oh, okay. maybe, maybe we can then talk briefly today about your thoughts on it because I had read an article you had done, it might have been a few years ago, probably when all of these psychedelic companies were still in their infancy or not even born yet, but interested in your thoughts on that, the future in that area and um, how you see that going yeah in inside and inside the medical model so maybe just start back into the I'll, I'll say the timothy leary years or even pre-timothy leary years <laughs> if, if you don't mind the um i mean I, i'm i'm interested in my thoughts too because i'm they're still <laughs> developing so I'll, I'll see what i have what i end up saying um but back in the um so lsd was invented in the laboratory uh in the 30s so it's an old drug mm -hmm. Uh, and when it was, um, you know, uh, came out, you know, when it was invented, um, it was actually no one really knew quite what it was good for. Mm -hmm. um, it's like the, the people didn't use the language of psychedelic at, at that point, but um, it was um, widely, it was distributed to psychiatric researchers with the hope that they would figure out what it might be good for. And then there might be some profit for the, for the company. Um, and so one of the ways that it was most widely used initially was as a um, drug that created a states of artificial schizophrenia. It was felt mm -hmm. that it made you crazy. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the context within which people got interested in serotonin as potentially, because it was um, LSD and serotonin are chemically, structurally quite similar. And this mm -hmm. struck people that maybe therefore serotonin has something to do with sanity or insanity. Uh, but there were other people, including your friends out in Saskatchewan. Is that how I, if I pronounce the name of your town correctly? Yeah. You, you must be a relative in some way, shape, or form. <laughs> Saskatchewan, um, who they weren't the only ones, but they were prominent ones who were interested also in its potential therapeutic effects. And there was a view that in small doses, it might be therapeutic because it gave you access to the unconscious and you could then work through your issues in psychotherapy and mm -hmm. in larger doses, it created a full blown psychosis that, you know, in a, quite the contrary, then gave you insight into disease, you know, into, into, into the disorder of schizophrenia. Um, then, you know, um, there's a lot of work that goes on and some of it, and this is well known, but, you know, but in, often sensationalized in the telling, um, some of it is weaponized, this research, because the CIA is interested in the possibility of a chemical that makes people crazy. Because, you know, how would first, like, what if some you know, enemy uh, slips LSD into the drinking water? What would happen to troop morale? And or could it be used in some way as a weapon itself? So there is CIA-funded CIA research. Um, and the CIA-funded research is one of the reasons that uh, LSD ends up going rogue because of people like Ken Kesey, who volunteer for some of this CIA-funded research and then come to conclude, as others were in the you know early 60s and beyond, that LSD actually uh, doesn't make you crazy at all; it makes you sane, you know, truly sane, and. The rest becomes a story we don't need to rehearse. Um, 
And more, he was the author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest as well. Is that right? He was the author of One Flew Under the, Over the Cuckoo's Nest that he wrote uh, either during or just after he had participated in these experiments. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and he then goes and gets in his um, big, you know, psychedelic painted bus and they go across country and they challenge people to take LSD and, um, you know, the story of why this all gets closed down and the role played by Nixon in particular and the so-called war on drugs and the relationship between the war on drugs and Nixon's F interest in demonizing certain groups of people who are, say, against the Vietnam War, like the hippies, uh, and wanting to turn them all into drug heads and crazy folks. You know, it's a complicated story. Um, and there were concerns about abuse and dangers that, you know, I think need to be taken seriously also. But then let's fast forward. Uh, you know, then we have a big hiatus in that story, apparently, or at least it goes underground. Right. Uh, and the st whole story of drugs is now about, you know, for decades, it's about antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications and and medications that are not supposed to actually give you an experience, but simply correct an imbalance. They're supposed to make you normal, not supposed to make you more than normal. Or um, Then what happens is the SSRIs that we talked about before that became sort of the bread and butter of family practice, um, psychiatric uh, drug care, um, the patents run out on them. Uh -huh. um, it's very hard to, no one knows where to look for new options. You know, they, they've been tweaking this and that, you know, bit of the chemical structure to be able to get out a patent on a new variation. And um, well, wasn't, it, wasn't, it, hmm? wasn't it 2003 too, where they said a farm is out and it became actually harder to do the clinical trials because I think they raised the threshold on, um, how they had to prove efficacy as well. So that made it more difficult for there them were, to... There were also changes in how clinical trials. So so one was the problem of lack of good places to look, new new good places to look. The other was the problem of getting even a, a modestly novel variant on an SSRI through a clinical trial process. Um, there was a big um, and growing problem with the placebo effect. Mm-hmm. Uh -huh. Um, you have to beat placebo if you're going to get a drug to trial. And the placebo effect was, had always been a nuisance uh, for people running clinical trials. But yeah. now there, you begin to see articles coming out about, you know, the placebo effect is growing. It's big. It's more powerful than it used to be. Mm. Uh, and we don't know why. And what's the, and um, so there's, an, you know, and then the problems with the DSM start uh, also coming home to roost because, well, you've got a whole group of people who have all been diagnosed with depression and they all go into a clinical trial uh, for a particular antidepressant. Some of them get better, some of them don't, but they're all supposed to have the same disorder. So mm -hmm. what's going on? Well, it turns right. out that in the DSM, you know, maybe they have no overlapping symptoms. So maybe they don't even have the same disorder, but no one really knows how to, you know, figure mm -hmm. out what to do instead. Uh, so the upshot is that, um, the pharmaceutical industry for the last sort of eight to 10 years has been abandoning, uh, largely abandoning research in this field. The one notable exception is around Alzheimer's where there's still hope 
that uh, and there's still been a lot of investment, but mostly they've been leaving. They've been investing in oncology and other areas where they hope they can make more money. But now in the last 18 months or so, mm-hmm. and you know, this is still a very uh, new and emer- or still emerging history. Um, we've begun to see a very, you know, a, a new interest in rehabilitating and also patenting versions of these older drugs uh, as a new kind of antidepressant. And uh, now, because there's a potential new way forward, suddenly people are being more honest about the fact that there hadn't been any breakthroughs for 40 years. Uh, No one was willing to say that when that was the only thing on the market, but now that they potentially are going to push through a whole new approach, um, uh, we're talking about a new revolution. Right. but what is it going to mean? You know, how are we going to how are we going to fit LSD or psilocybin or even ketamine, mm-hmm. uh, which has a slightly different uh, lineage? That was a uh, ketamine was originally a anesthetic that was used in veterinary medicine and a horse tranquilizer. <laughs> there you go, a horse tranquilizer, and then it becomes a street drug, you know, a party drug. It's special K, and but people mm-hmm. know it sort of know what of off label that it also helps with depression um the form of um ketamine that got fda approval about 18 months ago uh is not the ketamine that uh, was the horse tranquilizer or right. special k in the rave parties it is it's uh, esketamine why is it esketamine well they would argue you know, that it's, you know, less, you know, they have more control over it. It doesn't produce as great a high. They don't want people to have a high, but one reason has to also be that it can be uh, patented. Yes, yes. Um, they picked a molecule and then somehow they got it through the FDA, even though it's practically speaking probably just the same thing. It's probably not. But um, if you're off patent, it's cheap to give and mm-hmm. they – you know, and the pharmaceutical companies exist to make money. They may be, some of them also see the mission to relieve suffering and to bring mm-hmm. novel uh, medications onto the market. I don't want to intrinsically demonize them, but it's important to their ability to survive that they make money. Mm-hmm. And so they now see um, psychedelics as a potential place where profits could be made. Mm-hmm. What isn't clear to me and where I'm, this is why I've gotten intrigued by this story, is um, how well they're going to be able to domesticate these medications yeah. in the same kind of medical model that they that the SSRIs lived in. Yes. yes. You know, if they if people get high off them, if part of if the argument is that one of the reasons they're so effective against depression is people in you know work out, you know, have encounters with their demons and work things through and come mm-hmm. out more whole, that's not a particularly medical treatment. Mm-hmm. And so suddenly there's a potential at least for the psychotherapist and the pharmacologist to have to talk to each other. Right. Uh, whether that will happen uh, yeah. is completely, you know, your well, guess it, is mine. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you, if you are going to write about it, I, I would love to read about it. And I'd be more, I guess, more so interested in reading about 
not that you want to wait this long, but you know, your 50 year historical review of what the last 50 years of the psychedelic Renaissance, um, what actually transpired because I'm with you where, you know, and this isn't a critique, but the psychedelics industry is trying to fit. <clears throat> a lot of it is, is the old cannabis playbook plus the old pharmacy playbook within a medical model. Um, and the protocols are going to be very challenging. Um, but there's been a billion dollars of venture capital invested in this. And we're at a time where I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if, I don't know how fast this would have escalated had COVID not presented itself. Probably hmm. would have. I don't know. I don't know. I think this is an I, opportunity. I think it's still all coming into focus for me. I mean, part of the reason why historians are always told not to like try to do histories of the day before yesterday is you're going to make mistakes <laughs> and things are changing. And you're also, you're swimming in the same water as anybody else. And, yeah. you know, it's hard to not, um, you know, it's hard to necessarily see clearly uh, how to, you know, what, you know what 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 the structure of the story will be. But I'm inclined to be at least interested in how far the n new interest coming out of the last 12 to 18 months around COVID and the pandemic and the reckoning, the national reckonings with racism in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And the consequent also new kinds of conversations about trauma, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. whether that's going to shape how we also talk about the pharma these pharmaceuticals. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot more talk than we ever saw in uh, the past about drug-assisted psychotherapy. Yeah. And... I don't know who's really, you know, what kind of expertise you need to do drug-assisted psychotherapy. Do you need to be a doctor? Do you need to be a therapist? Do you need to be a shaman? You know, what do you? What yeah. is the skill set? Um, in, in Canada, actually, within the last month, the federal government has approved a company called Theracil to develop the protocols for an individual to become a psychedelic trained psychotherapist or therapist wow. or whatever. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, that's very, I mean, I, I think it could be, you know, it's kind of encouraging, mm -hmm. you know, and it's kind of, you know, you kind of think, well, is it going to be the same old, same old, because in the end profit will drive, you know, mm -hmm. the outcomes more than what I always am saying, like, well, what's going to help the most? Drug, you know, drug-assisted psychotherapy is not going to be cheap. No. Uh, but a pill, actually, uh, you know, that, you know, you take home uh, mm -hmm. might be, I read an article uh, that just came out about a few weeks ago about somebody who um, was sent esketamine in the mail mm -hmm. with instructions about how to sort of have a journey, you know, and, and, yeah. and, and she got kind of like, uh, ER shades and earplugs, you know, and was put on, you know, and a, mm -hmm. I don't know if she got a CD, but it was like the music was involved and she had to oh, do wow. her own journey. Wow. Interesting. Uh, and, then, and then did like a telehealth uh, conference with somebody yeah. on Zoom. Mm -hmm. I've heard about some of that kind of stuff too. But what I come back to, and I, I know you got to go, but I'll, I'll, I'll end with this is, you know, when I look through the history of your book, I think there's a lot of, parallels with the psychedelic 
journey. And so I would encourage um, people that, because there's right now there's a lot of, um, everybody's coming out of the woodworks because there's money involved in psychedelics. Yeah. And therefore I've, I think 10 psychiatrists I know have contacted me and saying, oh, I'm, I, I think I might spend the next 20 years working on this. And it's like, well, you didn't even know about it two years ago, you know? And so I, I think there's a lot of tales, a cautionary tales in your history um, that would also prove to be true with the psychedelics journey. I'm sure, uh, you know, when something happens, I mean, for me, going back to like the origins of Mind Fixers itself, I decided, you know, there was a, or I became convinced that there was an important and poorly understood story to tell about the 1980s because everything happened so fast. Mm-hmm. And it happened without any breakthrough scientific or clinical anything to justify like everyone pivoting. And now right. we're again in a moment where people are pivoting so fast. Mm-hmm. These drugs have been around for decades and there's yeah. been an underground world of psychedelic, you know, clinicians who work with these drugs yeah. for a really long time. Um, so what accounts for the rush to embrace this? And, you know, part of it might be that, you know, big pharma, you know, ran out of ideas in the other markets and it sees an opportunity. Part of it might be that people are hungry to find alternatives to, you know, sort of chemical imbalance talk and to re-embrace a more kind of um, human-centered way of thinking about mental disorder because I think the psychedelics lend themselves to Mm -hmm. talks about journeys and transcendence and insight. Uh, and the field has not been able to talk about those things uh, for a long time. Uh, yeah. And there probably are things that I don't, I'm not yet able to talk about because it's too early or I don't yet have the wisdom to see them. I think this is, this is definitely though a place to watch. Absolutely. And I, just to put a pin in this conversation and it's not um, a, a medical comment, but I think purpose and meaning in, in life today is so lacking and that that's why a lot of people are, you know, we live in a society and not to get religious, but you know, God used to be an anchoring force for our civilization in many ways. And you can critique it. Um, and with, with the absence of that, we're looking for um, meaning and purpose at a deeper level. And I think a lot of us are missing that. And so, this may be one of those voids in which people are trying to fill in that, in that way. And so anyways, that's just an anecdotal comment, but. No, I don't think it's, um, you know, I don't think you should uh, diminish that comment. I think it's a really important and powerful one and a good note to end on. There is a kind of a, maybe this will be my final thought, you know, that one, I don't normally talk very much about this, but one effect of, the last 40 years of a quite narrow medically oriented approach to mental distress has been a loss of, you know, you know that kind of broad existential humanistic uh, way of understanding one summary, you know, the things people don't just, you know, sometimes people just want to make it go away. I just want the pain to go away. Yeah. But there's also a way in which people want you know, their lives to make sense. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a 
of, there's a not very uh, widely discussed phenomenon of some that you see in some folks who go on antidepressants that um, you know they kind of worry they lose their story because mm-hmm. uh, their story had been about you know marked by suffering and um, you know and and deep thinking about the you know the dark sides of life and and simply having that. You know what? What they never got a chance to do was to integrate who they were before with who they then become when they feel better, uh, yeah. and that created a, creates a kind of crisis in its own right. And I, I don't really have a, a view about what these drugs, in fact, do for people. But the argument is that they it helped. They do integrate. That they you know they provide a, a way for people to make sense of their biographical journey and to come out in some place where the different pieces have kind of landed in some kind of more whole and, 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 and sane space. So as we say, um, you know, I think this is not, this is a story that's still in very early days. It's happening faster than makes sense simply by virtue of the drugs themselves or any new scientific insight. So there's going to be a lot that we're going to need to pay attention to. And I think I'll be following it for a while. I will too. So if you ever need a PhD student to study (laughs) the history of psychedelics, I probably won't get into Harvard, but um, keep keep me posted on that. (laughs) Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure talking with you. It's been such a joy. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and um, I reference your book all the time and I will put it up in the, in my notes on when I, when I release this on. Uh, I'm very grateful. I'm very grateful for your kind words about that. And, um, you know, for the chance to have this kind of conversation. Yeah. Thank you, Anne. Take care of yourself and stay safe. You too. Bye-bye. Bye.